Welcome to People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose is a podcast of inspiring people whose stories help you see things differently, live with intentionality, elevate the way you participate in the world, and take the necessary leaps in your life to seek and find your passions. Come with us and develop the courage to wholeheartedly pursue your purpose and unleash your truest potential. We all take up space in this world, and I wanted to figure out how to take up space in a manner that honored people who were born into situations that were more difficult than I am. You find a gap and you fill it. You find a need and you fill it, and you do it with passion. I see the leader's job to set the table so that the feast can happen to set up the situation so team members can thrive, can grow. Be self-aware and then follow where your heart takes you. Matt Allingson is the Director of Relief and Humanitarian Affairs at Food for the Hungry, a global humanitarian organization that walks with the world's most vulnerable to help them graduate from extreme poverty. In his 20 plus years of experience in relief and development, Matt has worked in some of the world's most difficult contexts finding innovative ways to address age-old relief challenges such as natural disasters and refugee displacement to build resiliency. He is a firm believer in relationships, having the power to bridge the gaps that systems and processes may fail to bridge, and that poor relationships can render any design ineffective. This interview with Matt Ellickson was such a treasure. He brings such a wealth of wisdom and experience and knowledge in such an area that is directly related to purpose. I love how he talks about purpose being more about the how rather than the what. He has this concept of being average. He's happy, he strives to be average because he's just filling a gap. He doesn't intend to be the hero. He thinks that we need to move away from this idea that we're the hero. We're just filling a gap between you know, what's not there right now and what could be thriving. And how we do that is important, that we should be helping our neighbor, that we should be a good Samaritan, that we should be cherishing the opportunities of the moment right in front of us. I love this beautiful story he tells about a surgeon from the U.S., top-rated school, moving to Mozambique and foregoing all that to help people with hand-washing and sanitation. It's that kind of major decision that allows us to do something that isn't heroic in nature, just helping people to wash their hands, but it's what fills the gap for people to be able to thrive. And I thought that was beautiful. I also love how he talks about the importance of being self-aware and following where your heart takes you, rather than making up these notions of what it is that falls on your path, being open to seeing what's being put on your path and being able to transition or focus on on that thing that's right in front of you and if you're self-aware you'll be able to operate in a way that's the most purposeful and passionate and impactful for um, what's on your path i thought just thought that was extreme brilliance and then i think that this idea that borders divide people extends so far i think matt truly gets this he's working with people groups that have been displaced from their countries because they've been considered illegal they're now refugees they're living in a densely populated camp with minimal supplies and he just finds the way to meet the needs and then help them to thrive and i love the way that he 
brings attention to the fact that borders are dividing people. I think it extends so far for what society is facing right now with political parties and Western versus Eastern ways of thinking and so forth, that we need to get rid of this borders thinking and just see people for being for people, regardless of how much attention they're getting in the news or not. They're in a situation where their plight is not where it could be. Their quality of life is not to the standard that a lot of the world gets to live after. I mean, he positions him, himself and his NGO in a place that can really serve what's needed to thrive in these communities. I just think he's working at such a beautiful forefront of you know, what a model society can look like. And if there's a lot of people just being extremely average, as he calls it, we're going to have a lot better harmonious world that is actually serving people and getting rid of you know, these divisions between the haves and have-nots, those that are in poverty and those that are you know, fully thriving and truly wealthy. I just think that Matt's work is, is beautiful in that. Um, and then just finally, the, the value he places on, on dignity, to just see people for who they are, allow people to see you for who you are, and to be able to feel that fulfillment of helping people without needing to receive the accolade. I'm going to look for what he calls the invisible ways of doing that in our everyday. This interview is, was really impactful on me because it just shows you how many times there's opportunities right in front of you, right alongside you. You don't have to wait for this big grand vision that you're the hero in a lot of years from now. You can do it right now, every day, in such a simple way. So I really hope that you enjoyed this interview. I know I for sure did. And if you feel compelled do the work that's needed to be able to be self-aware and spot those opportunities and just fill these gaps. It's simple. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. And I'm excited for you to cherish today's episode with today's person of purpose, Matt Ellickson. Hello, Matt Ellickson, and welcome to the People of Purpose podcast. Such a blessing to have you here today sharing your story about working at the refugee camp in Rohingya and food for the hungry and all this you know, aid and development work you're doing abroad. It's super cool to feature a story like that. I'm really excited to unpack your purpose amongst all of that. Thanks a ton for having me. It's, a, it's an honor to be able to share a little bit. Yeah. Um, so you, I think what makes you really distinctive from the research I did was about the power of relationships. It seems like you have a deep understanding about relationships not only as a thing that like makes us feel good and gives us individual purpose and meaning to our life, but as like the solution, the root um, cure for kind of what's going on in the world around poverty and, um, you know, these, these divisions of kind of first world, second world, third world um, sort of thinking. Um, I'm just really curious, uh, like what, when did you start to really understand the importance of relationships? Um, and is there some sort of allegory or anything attached to your understanding of relationships? Oh, that is a good, good launching spot for a conversation. It's uh, it's sort of all encompassing. Um, you know, I think that trust is like a currency. Um, you can expend trust. You can use trust up by abusing it. Um, and when trust is abused, relationship is, um, is broken. Yeah. And the work of, the work that I've been a part of for my, my 26 years of, of career, and I certainly haven't done everything right and I've done way more wrong. Uh, 
but whenever when whenever something wrong happens, whenever I make a mistake, um, it's relationship that 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 catches the free fall, um, and it's good relationship that can um, can be the difference between a success and a failure in a particular activity. Um, but it's also the only thing that is truly resilient are people and uh, relationships with people when, when healthy builds towards the uh, positive transformation, which is what we're trying to uh, be a part of around the world um, with people, with households. Their people are always in relationship with each other. And when relationships are broken, um, all aspects of life become broken. Um, so in, in, uh, in simply cherishing life is cherishing relationships. Um, all these things are intricate for sure. Yeah, of course. Totally. Like the relationships have so much power and, and the relationships can form communities, which, you know, give us this energy to keep doing the work we're doing that bond us with the people we're we're looking to serve that give them an opportunity to serve us and it just creates this virtuous cycle that i would imagine is part of what makes your leadership style really successful it it has certainly helped in a lot of tension tenuous locations um but every culture has different uh parameters and different definitions of what appropriate relationships are and aren't and these things conflict and clash with each other sometimes and so that's where um that's where the trust and the building of a um of a momentum a positive positive momentum will get through these these little situations when uh when mistakes are made (laughs) yeah of course i'm just kind of curious about kind of your your personal journey into this work um did you come in from the work of like helping displaced populations and relief and, you know, disaster and development sort of aid? Or did you come in from this desire to want to span cultures and be immersed in cross-cultural relationships and learning and so forth? Or some combination of the two? How did this come about? Probably a little bit of a combination of the two. Um, I certainly trace back my, um, my worldview to when, um, to back in the mid eighties, my parents were missionaries. Um, they were teachers in South America and Peru. And, um, it was as a teenager. Um, I, I recall the epiphany of, um, realizing that, that there's, there's poverty in the world and there's wealth in the world. And up until that point, all I had really, um, realized was that my parents didn't buy me the new stuff that some other parent bought them. And so I compared myself to someone who, who had more stuff. Um, and then it was in South America for those years in the, in the mid eighties that, uh, that I encountered the reality that, um, in comparison to my Shipibo, uh, Peruvian friends, um, I had a lot of stuff. And so that began to like soak into who I am. Um, and uh, since then I have, you know, my worldview has, has, uh, has shifted and changed and deepened as I've learned and experienced more. Um, I've learned about how, you know, monet- monetary wealth doesn't equal wealth. 
Um, there's a richness in life that is far beyond um, any monetary component. So I trace my my beginnings back to the early in the mid eighties, nineteen eighty six to eighty eight is around. Um, that's where I realized that I was not poor, and I realized that um, that we all take up space in this world, and I wanted to figure out how to take up space um, in a manner that honored people who were born into situations that, uh, that were more difficult than I am. Um, fast forward through high school and through, I, I went to university and always had this idea that I wanted to work um, outside of the United States. Um, but back in the nineties, uh, there was not a, there wasn't really an a- academic pathway for aid workers. Um, so we sort of made up, made it up as we went and, uh, and I went through a bunch of different majors and then decided on uh, kind of an international studies. I was a guinea pig for my university, Trinity Western University up in British Columbia, Canada. And uh, yeah, international studies. And then then launched into a whole series of short-term or medium-term humanitarian um, assignments, starting in Japan after the earthquake. And then, and then my first real job was in Bosnia um, uh, during uh, the, about two years after the Dayton Accord, which is the peace accord. There's tons of ten- tension and lots of refugee movement. And uh, my job there was in uh, minority refugee resettlement. Um, and uh, that's where I started into the displaced people um, world. Wow, that's beautiful. I love how you seem to be very okay being the guinea pig, being the one that's doing this major, being the one that's going where everyone else is fleeing. It's such an interesting like decision to be making. How, was that something you were kind of born with or do you, did you have mentors or was it your parents that kind of told you this is okay to go you know, into these things that feel really aligned to your sense of purpose, but definitely don't fit with like where society is headed right now? Well, certainly my parents encouraged me um, or didn't discourage me. I know that uh, my mom wasn't thrilled when Bosnia became um, the place where I ended, started my career. Um, <laughs> and uh, back then, you, you couldn't get any, any paying work um, you know, without at least two years' experience in the field, which doesn't seem a lot, but it, it actually is really tough to do. So... Um, yeah, my parents facilitated. I mean, they they set things up so that I, I was exposed to uncomfortable truths, um, such yeah. as poverty, um, for sure. But uh, you know, I I don't I see myself as a uh, pretty average dude. Um, I noticed that on your Instagram, that's like in your bio right now. Oh yeah, it's like extremely, extremely average. average. I feel that is kind of funny. I, I like the the idea that I am so average. I can never find jeans in the store because they're all gone. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, you know, they're my, it's a different world now. So if uh, young people were asking me, younger people were asking me um, how to get into this type of work, the pathway that I took is, is, is no longer does not exist anymore. Like, you know, the, the ocean levels have, have risen and the roadway that I used is gone. It's underwater. But uh 
But the notion for me, and I think that the basic philosophy remains, that you find a gap and you fill it. You find a need and you fill it. And you, and you do it with passion and with purpose. These are all your words, man. Um, and you do, it, you do it because you treasure the person that you're working beside and for. Um, and uh, in, in the case of Bosnia and in the case of a lot of places around the world, and the, right now I would, I would say Kutapalan refugee situation in Bangladesh with the Rohingya um, is, a, is another example. These are really tough places to be. And whenever there's a really tough place to be, like Bosnia in the 90s, um, it's hard for organizations to find people to go and do the things that need to be done. And so that is an opportunity. There's a gap there. Step into it. It may not be um, rocket science. Like if you're a rocket scientist, you may not be doing rocket science. But, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, filling an essential gap. And you, we need to find fulfillment in that. Yeah, definitely. That's beautiful. That fits with a lot of kind of the principles of the past 60 some odd guests that we've interviewed is like, you got to find your unique way in which you kind of connect the puzzle that that's ahead of us. Um, and you said that passion and purpose are my words. I'm kind of curious, like, what do you prefer to, to, to say about that instead of passion and purpose? They just came right out of my head. I was, I, I was, I just realized after I said them that they were your words. They're not really your words, though. They're they're the words that you've highlighted, um, you know, and and that's beautiful and awesome. Um, You know, I've got words. They'll probably come up later. (laughs) Cool. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I I really like the word treasure. That's definitely more of an uncommon word to use in this in this space. But it's like you said, you treasure the person you're working beside and for. Uh, I like that leadership model as well, the beside and for. It seems that you have this really unique leadership style that's allowed you to kind of shape organizations and relief efforts and communities in unique ways. I know that you you mentioned that um, this was one of the possible topics we could talk about. Would now be a good time to kind of go into your leadership style? Sure. So what is it that you do as a leader that kind of sets you apart? I know you adopt this, you know, find the gap and fill it. Um, treasure the person you're working beside and for um yeah just teach teach us what what you mean by you know like what what does good leadership look like to you what does purposeful leadership look like to you how do you uniquely fulfill that yeah well i think that you know you 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 launch the conversation about relationship there's no such thing as no relationship there's mm-hmm. there's a spectrum of relationship which is which is uh you know, great and less great. Right. (laughs) Um, and so when I'm leading a team or when I'm a part of a team, um, you know, if we, we got to start from the premise that your team members are, are, um, created by God filled with dignity on their very own filled with power, um, filled with, with, uh, all this goodness, and as a leader, I see the leader's job to set the table so that, that the feast can happen, to set mm. up the situation so team members can, can, can thrive, can grow, 
Um, and thriving and growing doesn't mean always having success. It's having challenges um, and then working through those challenges with, with them. Um, it's not always possible, but I try my very best to enable um, a high risk tolerance. Um, so people should have uh, the freedom and the, the felt desire to innovate. To, to take things apart and to put them back together and to find improvement along the process mm-hmm. so that more people can experience goodness. Um, and if a leader is fearful of failure rather than striving for, um, for thriving, then our eye is on the minimum rather than the maximum. Um, right. so from that premise, everything kind of continues to, uh, to walk the path, um, in, in the aid industry, uh, I've basically my entire adult life, um, has been in the, in the humanitarian world. So I haven't, I haven't held a different kind of job, um, you know, since college. Man, I imagine that that's really set you apart. I don't know how many people do 25 plus years of humanitarian work solely. Not very many, um, but uh, but in our industry, we've got a really high uh, turnover rate. We got oh, people I would imagine. doing a lot, right? So yeah. there were there were years and years where it would get very very um, disheartening to watch good people come and good people go. Um, mm-hmm. And I watched as my leadership um, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes would resist the idea of a good person moving on and would try all kinds of um, methods to discourage the moving on because it'll have a negative impact on the, on the organization. There's institutional knowledge that's going right out the door with someone you've invested all this time into this person. And then they're, they're leaving and they're taking their talent somewhere else. That's a, that's a hit on any, any organization. And it certainly is a hit on me too. However, um, that's a selfish way to start the conversation. Right. So um, leaders need to a put put their teams in positions where they can thrive, and b celebrate them onto the next position. Um, if they are seeking a pathway, and we all are, I am anyway. Um, I'm not. I don't want to hold anyone back, um, and I will do everything that I can to be. Uh, a cheerleader and champion for team members that are excelling and, and willing to put it out there on the line. So I think that these things all build trust like a currency and they build strong relationships and those relationships will last, um, you know, years and years. Wow. So much I want to unpack here. Like I love the way that you talk about trust being a currency. Um, And then I like this abundant mindset you take towards this, this work. It's like, Oh, we're losing someone that has all this institutional knowledge, but there's a certain level of like trust that that person kind of knows their path ahead of them. And you're going to like cheer that path on versus making them stay within your organization. Yeah. Just tell me more about that. Teach me more about how that works. Like, how do you, how do you rationalize that when, you know, you invested thousands of dollars and hours into somebody and they're, they're leaving because they feel like, I don't know, maybe you even sense a limiting belief about them. Like this isn't 
maybe they think this is too dangerous of an environment or I can't stay away from home this long or I need to work back in the U.S. so I can have the comforts of whatever, AC and whatnot. How do you how do you rationalize this with people? Do you do you try to persuade them of anything or are you just kind of listening to them? Um, well, I try to persuade, but my persuade what I want is that that people are in their in the spot that fits them best. Right. And over the course of time, we all change. And so that spot is it's logical. That spot's gonna change as well. What I did in my in my twenties, I don't do anymore. Um I have different responsibilities, different people res- relying on me, um, a family. Um, so I don't take an assignment that has me separated from my family for two years plus. But uh, back in my 20s, I did. Um, and so there's a, there's, a pro- there's a process here. I think that um, I don't want to be owned by my employer. Um, I think I, I have a... I, I have a certain number of breaths in this life and they are not my employers and they are not mine really. And so the, the space that I, that I fill during my time on this planet is, is, uh, is the Lord's and I desire it to be, you know, contributing towards something bigger than, than me. Um, so I believe that for myself. So I also believe that any of the team members, I don't own them. Our, our employer doesn't own them. Right. Talents are God given that are benefiting the organization. So when we start from that premise, it's like your hands are off. You know, all you can do is, is, is lift or suppress. Mm-hmm. Holding is not an option. Um, <laughs> if you want to, if, if we want to be consistent with this worldview. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's simple. I love that thought. Um, I too am a Christian as well. And I think that we have to, we have to practice this letting go of our life. We put out the intention, we speak our feelings and thoughts about things, but we have to give it away. Like it's not our life to just like choose how we, how we live it. Like we got to be a servant for, for the Lord's calling to us. And um, that calling, I agree, can change and shift and be seen in different ways. Um, to me, the purpose is like this underlying thing that you're put on the earth for, but it's not like found in a refugee camp in Rohingya or in a classroom. It's um, it's not limited to just one or two of those types of things. It, it transcends all of that. It, it sits within your relationships with your family and your career um, as well. It's the way I see it. Is that similar to what you see it as, or how do you think about what does purpose mean to you in all of this? Yeah, well, you know, it reminds me of a little story. Can I tell a story? Yeah, I love stories. All right, I'm going to get my coffee cup here and take a sip. I think it was in the early 2000s, and I was working for um, an organization, and I was was traveling with some uh, dear friends in, in northern India. In, uh, in the Punjab region. And we had been driving forever, it felt. There had been a breakdown on the road. We'd been driving forever. I was jet lagged. Um, and I really didn't know. I either didn't pay attention to know where we were going or I hadn't been told. I don't remember that detail very much. But we finally rolled into this little community and 
it's it, you know it's in the high plateau regions of Punjab, and all the the streets are walled. So you know you kind of wind through the streets, and we get to the center of the town, and there are hundreds and hundreds of people, mostly kids, all sitting out in the sun, and they had been there for quite a while, and they were waiting for us. And um, I did not know that this was going to happen. Um, however, as an aid worker for a faith-based organization, one must always be ready to be um, placed on a stage and asked to provide a sermon. Um, and I was wow. minimally prepared for this, um, even though I know in my mind that there's scenarios where I'm going to be thrust um, into that, uh, that I'm going to need to be ready to have some sort of positive message. So I'm not, I'm not at my best at this case. And um, they put me at this little, little platform that they had made. And there's hundreds of, of kids, hundreds and I don't know how many, but the whole square was full. And the, the pastor and Sunday school leaders for that little area had been killing time by reading Bible stories. Um, and so I did not know what I was going to say to these people, but I saw a, a children's book up in front uh, in a little basket. And from the cover, I could tell that it was the story of the Good Samaritan. And so I decided that I would ease my brain into whatever I was going to say by telling the story of the Good Samaritan, which was appropriate because I, at the time I worked for Samaritan's Purse. Um, so as, as I was going, I then realized that we had to go through at least three translations. So it would be English to um, one language, and then from that length, from uh, Hindi, Hindi to um, the local dialect. So I had this big gap between my sentence and the sentence that was received by the children. And um, I was telling the story, little, you know, little phrase by little phrase, so that I know it very well. And then I, then I said, and, and the Samaritan was on his way. And I stopped and I let the person, and my mind just left me. I was like, all of a sudden, I had this moment of a, like epiphany, was on his way. Was, where was he going? What was he doing? What was this guy all about? You know, was he a, you know, what did he do? What was his purpose? You know, beyond what we know from the parable type of, yeah. type of thing. And um, I kind of I snapped to with all these eyeballs staring at me and both uh, interpreters. And I totally had lost where I was and I stammered through the rest of the day, but I've, I've settled on, um, along our way, along our way. It's, it's non it's non-descriptive along our way, along our life's path, along our life's path. We have to engage with the, the things that we, that are within our reach, um, not step over the injured person that's in your path, um, physically injured, emotionally injured, spiritually, spiritually injured, any injury. Um, and we must engage with that dynamic in a way that um, is good and brings goodness. And um, I can't remember your question, but this story came to mind when you asked it. Um, so for, for me, and I think for, uh, for the way that I, I try to share. This is a really simple way for me to say, um, if I were a mechanic, I'm going to engage with the people that are in my path with honesty and dignity and truthfulness and 
you know, if you've ever had a breakdown in a community that you don't know, you really rely on a mechanic. Oh, yeah. Right. If your vehicle breaks down, you, you like you have no idea or go to the dentist. Oh, you need braces. Really? I don't know. I don't know. Um, so whatever our life's path is, find truth and dignity um, be, be the, the, the riverbanks, the guidelines and purpose will be found right in this, right in the middle of that. Um, so it's less specific about what to do and it's more specific about how to do it. And that's where relationships are built. I think. Wow. I love that. Purpose is more about the how, not the what we do. What do you mean when you say that's where relationships are built? Is that kind of the the relationship model you you work with at, at work? Is that you are engaging with everyone on your path, downtrodden or not, in a way that aligns with your your overarching purpose? I think that if we cherish people, if we cherish life, that um, most of the time relationship will a good relationship, a healthy relationship will follow. If right. we don't cherish life, if we don't cherish the person, trust isn't there, and we will have the opposite of a thriving situation, a thriving relationship. The tasks mm-hmm. that are done in bad relationship can get accomplished, but they're going to be less resilient, less sustainable. Um, they're going to be questionable because we're not really sure whether this was because I forced it or because we worked together. Um, Um, but when relationships are good, um, it's like a road that's paved versus a a rough path, right? Slashing through the jungle. Awesome. Um, yeah, if you're listening to this podcast interview right now with me and Matt, um, and he's talking about relationship, he's talking about how purpose is more about the how than the what, um, if you're listening to this and you see value in this and want to share this with people, Go ahead and leave a review. Um, just pause right here. We're not going anywhere. Just leave a review for one or two minutes um, and come right back here. I mean, it's just such a good way to find more guests like Matt and to elevate the story of people that are living purposefully. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the podcast. Um, all right, Matt. Sorry for that shout out. I have to try to do that to get people to engage with the what we're doing because I just I really think that what you're doing and and kind of the medium that we're in that combination is such a way to like light people up and bring them into this understanding that they have much more to life than just collecting things and checking boxes um, and doing what someone else has kind of prescribed their path to be. Um, I really admire the way that you have walked it was a super unique path that is in align with, with what you say is like, you know, God's path for you. And, and you're really practicing the how, no matter what environment you're in, no matter what you're tasked with doing. Um, and I, I just think that people need to yeah, understand that and see that for themselves in their life. Cause that's, that to me is like one of the major keys to really creating a more harmonious world um, in which we feel there's more significance and meaning behind what we're doing. Yeah. Um, so you work for uh, with or for food for the hungry. Um, yeah. How, yeah. how, Tell me about the organization. Like they sound like an incredible organization. How are they helping people in need during, you know, this current worldwide state of crisis? Yeah. So Food for the Hungry is a medium-sized INGO, international non-governmental organization. We're a right. Christian 
charity. Um, and uh, we've got uh, affiliate offices. That means we've got uh, Food for the Hungry in Switzerland and the UK, uh, Japan, Korea, Canada. Um, you know, these are kind of our fundraising um, offices around the world. Each of them are independent, fully autonomous, although we, we refer to ourselves as a, as a global family. Mm. Um, in 18 countries around the world, we've got operations going on. So actual traditional NGO activities with an office and staff and vehicles running around um, and good people doing good stuff. Um, Food for the Hungry was launched in the, in the uh, early 70s um, by a doctor, um, Larry Ward, who was responding to the massive refugee crisis in Southeast Asia. Um, and, and from that experience in the humanitarian space, uh, sprang food for the hungry, um, and the work that FH, we refer to ourselves as FH, um, does, uh, globally over time, um, more of our work has become in the sustainable long-term development space, um, working with farmers for improved farming practices, um, with mothers and with nutrition, um, with education, with uh, market access, you know, in a lot of places where subsistence farming is the norm, um, you might have a whole bunch of farmers all growing the same thing at the same time. They bring it to the market at the same time. And if, if anyone is aware of the market ebbs and flows when a market is filled with the same thing, that thing is of less value than when it's not filled, when it's not over, when the market's not overrun. So organizing farmers to, um, to access their marketplaces uh, differently increases their profits, enables them to save and builds resilience in the household and um, institutional, you know, community-wide development occurs. Um, so, so we talk about livelihoods, food security, um, and those education, um, all these types of activities in the long term. Um, my role in Food for the Hungry is director of, of relief and humanitarian affairs. So no matter how successful a long-term development program is, people living on the margins have less uh, resilience and strength against a shock that happens. And that shock might be a drought might be a locust infestation like what's happening in, in East Africa right now. It might be conflict like in Myanmar, Burma, um, and Bangladesh with the Rohingya. It could be a major storm. I mean, it could be all kinds of different things. But if a shock happens um, and someone is living on the margin and doesn't have um, a store of food to uh, you know, back up resources of any kind, they are more prone to falling into destitution um, and extreme poverty. So all of these locations where we're doing long-term development, these people are simply at a higher risk to um, being more negatively impacted by, by um, a crisis of some sort. Right. So when that happens, um, Food for the Hungry has a team of people that I'm a part of, and we provide um, immediate relief. Um, it might be food aid, if that's what's determined is the need. Could be water and sanitation. Could be... All, all different kinds of things. Um, and we do this through partnership, through relationship, like we've been talking about. 
Um, we partner with the local church. We partner with other NGOs. We partner with the United Nations. Um, we partner with governments. Um, we, we partner to get it done. Um, and partnership is, an, is another word for relationship. Um, there can be transactional partnerships, which is, the, which is, I think, the minimum standard of a relationship. You know, I'll do this if you do that. I'll give you this if you do that. It's a transactional relationship. Right. Or there can be, um, you know, deeper relationships where I'm going to do this because this is right and you're cherished. And so we, we mm. carry on there. And all of that exists in the, in the ecosystem of food for the hungry. We're not perfect. I am not perfect. I make so many mistakes. You can interview my, my colleagues. You, they'll tell you. Um, but, uh, but if we have the, if we have the internal fortitude and the organizational resilience to, uh, to put it out there, we're going to, we're going to thrive. Yeah, of course. I love that. Um, it sounds really, I mean, yeah, it must be like such a big task to take on to, you know, have the United Nations be watching what you're doing or a government that may or may not be super pure and put together and may have a bunch of bureaucracy involved. Um, you have to like step into those spaces and do things the way that you guys know is best, but still be open to learning what the local organizations say is best. That must be like a tricky balance to have. Like, I guess what I'm asking about here is like how you do the, the cultural element of this. You're bringing your you know, Western backed knowledge about what to do in these situations. You're applying a template to, to these things, but obviously you have to be super open to the unique challenges facing you know, a unique group of people um, that have a unique shock. So how do you, yeah, how do you resolve that? How do you overcome that? What does your investigation aspect of the work look like before you dive into doing the work? Well, you said it exactly right. There's no two situations that are the same. Um, the common ingredients are people and, you know, the basic human needs of, of life. Right. Um, other than that, the the ingredients are so different um you know you have the the type of crisis is different the culture that the crisis is happening in is different the way people engage with each other in that particular culture is different the the traditional role of children men and women are it's all different um so the humility coming in that that i don't have the answers um right off the bat Here's a whole set of 26 years of experience. Maybe something in the background might be like a screwdriver that'll be useful or, or not, but maybe, maybe not. And I have to release what I think I know and, and take what is before me as a unique, brand new situation, kind of like cherishing the moment. I think that's my word for the day, cherish. Um, you know, I don't, maybe at one time I was overwhelmed with the notion of governments and uh, the United Nations um, being involved and looking into this stuff, but they're just people like me. Some of them are remarkable, but most of them are like me, average. And most people are trying to get through the day um, and trying to do something good. You know, there are, there are the bad actors out there for sure. And there's the bureaucracies that are um, a challenge. But it's the, these these are these are real people. I I can't have a relationship with a bureaucracy, but I can have a relationship with the people who are who are functionaries of that bureaucracy. 
and they live in a home somewhere and they have people in their lives. So I can trust and I can trust that relationship exists. So I will treat, treat them well. Um, I think that being in the position that I am, I'm like a translator. Um, I have to be able to translate the message from the, from the ground, from the people who are experiencing the shock to the government or UN donor who's contributing the resources. I also have to take the mandates and the restrictions that the government places on itself and not apply things I know they can't do to the solution on the ground. So I don't want to overcommit and underdeliver. I want to over, I want to undercommit and overdeliver. You know, yeah. I, I don't want to disappoint. I want to surprise on the good side. Um, so navigating all of that is is difficult. And just like the dynamics are unique at the ground level, the dynamics are also unique inside the halls of government, um, inside the halls of the United Nations. Um, these are all just people, and we're all just trying to get through the day. And uh, we can we treat each other with dignity and, and respect, and we're going to get through the day um, better. Um, relationship will be built, and we'll have a more likely out, uh, positive outcome. Yeah, of course. That's great. Thank you for listening to part one of this interview with Matt Ellingson on the role of relationships in impactful and effective disaster relief efforts. Be sure to listen to next week's episode as we wrap up our conversation with Matt talking about filling in the gaps within our reach with dignity, being filled up by good relationships for goodness, and how these relationships allow thriving to happen. Listen also as Matt speaks on having a profound impact despite considering himself as average and the Rohingya refugee crisis in Bangladesh and how coronavirus has taken its toll on them.